Mormonism. What do Mormons believe? Are they Christian? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Dr. Pat Zuckerman. Recently, Pat invited Dr. Ron Rhodes to address Mormonism at a conference in Hawaii. Today, you'll hear part two of that presentation, and it's crucial resources like these that we offer at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's articles, books, interviews with leading scholars, and past programs available for download on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, Pat presents Dr. Ron Rhodes on Mormonism. Uh, Mormons will often say they believe in the Trinity, but they redefine it in terms of tritheism. And these three gods are united only by a common purpose and by having similar attributes of perfection. Any way you look at it, this constitutes a denial of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And number eight, there are actually innumerable gods in the universe. Humans are God in embryo form, if I might put it that way. We can become heavenly fathers ruling our own planets. As man is now, God once was. As God now is, so man may become. Now, you understand what this is teaching, right? The heavenly father that we have on this planet has a heavenly father himself. And that heavenly father himself has a heavenly father who gave birth to him. And prior to that, there was a heavenly father. And this it's like an infinite regress of heavenly fathers. And, of course, there's a philosophical problem there, isn't there? After all, there had to be one Heavenly Father that got it all started. You just can't go back forever with an endless chain of Heavenly Fathers. And so this has been one of the big problems for the Mormon Church. Number nine, every human being has the potential to become exalted to Godhood. In fact, the book Gospel Principles says we can become gods like our Heavenly Father. This is exaltation. And then Brigham Young said, The Lord created you and me for the purpose of becoming gods like himself, to becoming gods like unto our Father in heaven. Not unexpectedly, Mormons appeal to John 10:34, where Jesus says, Ye are gods. If Jesus said it, it must be true. Human beings can become gods. Number 10, attaining godhood takes a lot of work in pre-mortality, mortality, and post-mortality. These words may be unfamiliar to you. Uh, pre-mortality means that uh, before you were born on earth, you were a spirit child in heaven. And as a spirit child in heaven, uh, you, your goal was to be obedient to the gospel principles and work towards godhood. And the fact that you're born on earth is an indication that you were obedient. I need to mention to you that uh, at one time there was a racist teaching within the Mormon church to the effect that if you were not obedient uh, in the preexistence, you were born on the earth with a dark skin. Now, they had a, a change in doctrine back during the civil rights movement. The uh, president had a revelation which changed this doctrine so that uh, African-Americans and others could join the priesthood that they were once forbidden to participate in. Mortality is life on earth. They uh, uh, take on a human body, and then they're tested by experiencing physical temptations and work towards godhood. And by the way, um, this kind of relates to the emphasis on polygamy. By polygamous relationships, many bodies are provided for the many spirits who are awaiting the opportunity to inhabit a physical body. So it's all part of the, uh, a cohesive theology. And then in post-mortality, you can continue working towards godhood after you die. So it's a very long process. And, uh, you know, it's, it's extended to such an extent that uh, you wonder if you're ever going to arrive. But this is part and parcel of Mormonism. Uh, number 11, Jesus was the first and greatest spirit son born to the heavenly father and one of his unnamed wives, a heavenly mother. 
He was begotten first. Jesus was the greatest spirit child, and Lucifer was born second, meaning that Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers. Typically, Mormons will call Jesus our elder brother. Bruce McConkie, a Mormon apostle, put it this way, Christ was begotten by an immortal father in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. Now, this is referring to the time when Jesus was born on earth. Sometimes Christians get a little confused about this part. Let me just make sure that you're with me on it. First, the father, along with one of his unnamed wives in heaven, gave birth to spirit babies. So Jesus was first born as a spirit baby. Later, the heavenly father came down and had relations with Mary, his daughter, and then gave birth to Jesus physically. Are you with me? This is, this is what Mormons teach. Number 12, all other human beings were also spirit sons and daughters of the heavenly father and heavenly mother. After Christ and Lucifer were all other human beings, including you and me. And again, this is why Mormons will often refer to our elder brother. Uh, we too can become exalted as Jesus was. So they set the example and we can follow their lead. Number 13, Jesus' atonement attained general salvation for all of us. And that basically refers to resurrection from the dead. Jesus' atonement basically means he was able to overcome physical death. He paid the price for you to rise from the grave. He is your savior in the sense of saving you from physical death. This is called general salvation. There's also individual salvation, however. Individual salvation is merited by obedience to the laws of the gospel. Now, I want you to understand that Mormons thoroughly reject this idea of justification by faith. Now, you understand what I mean by this term, right? Justification by faith means that the moment you trust in Jesus, you are declared righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. You are acquitted of all your guilt. So negatively, you're acquitted of guilt, but positively, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account. That's what justification is. It's kind of like this. If I look through a yellow glass, all of you look yellow. If I look through a blue gla glass, then all of you would look blue. When the Heavenly Father looks at the Christian who's, who's trusted in Jesus, he sees them through the white holiness of Jesus. You're acquitted of all sin, and you're perfectly holy. That's what justification is. Now, the Mormons say that that's absolutely wrong. In fact, James Talmadge in his study of the Articles of Faith, refers to justification by belief alone as a most pernicious doctrine. He laments that the dogmas of men have been promulgated to the effect that by faith alone may salvation be attained. One must of necessity engage in perpetual works. Talmadge says there is no difference in meaning between true faith and works of faith. In the Bible, the two terms mean the same thing. So this is a work salvation we're talking about. They will talk about grace. They will talk about grace, but they define that as God's enabling power that allows people to lay hold on eternal life and exaltation after they have expended their own best efforts. But God's grace alone does not save. So works are involved. One of their favorite verses is Matthew 5:48, which says, Be ye perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. So you must be a perfect person in your works. As you uh, engage in acts, of obedience to the laws of the gospel, you will eventually attain exaltation. Now, uh, in keeping with that, there are three kingdoms of glory, according to Mormonism, the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the telestial kingdom. I was talking to my father-in-law about this, and he asked me, he says, Ron, are, is each one a little hotter than the other one? Uh, well, no, that's not the point. But let me just explain it to you the way they explain it. The celestial kingdom is the highest degree of glory and is inhabited by faithful Mormons. So if you're one of those Mormons who has obeyed the gospel principles and you were good in pre-mortality, mortality, and post-mortality, this is where you go 
And this is where you have the opportunity to attain exaltation. The terrestrial kingdom is reserved for non-Mormons who live moral lives, as well as less than valiant Mormons. And then the telestial kingdom is reserved for those who have been carnal and sinful throughout life. And allegedly, most of the people will go into this telestial kingdom. Uh, Mormons also say that uh, many people have to suffer through hell for a time before go getting to that last kingdom. Now let's talk a little bit about answering Mormon beliefs. Uh, obviously, we only have a limited amount of time, so I'm going to be quick, but I do want to give you some biblical answers in order to demonstrate how different this is from traditional Christianity. First of all, Mormonism is not the true church. Mormonism is not the true church. You know, we have a precise history of the kind of stuff that took place back in the first century. And we have records of all the kinds of heresies that emerged back then, and uh, we know what people believed by the, you know, back then. If it was true that Mormonism was the restored church that was lost sometime in the first century, wouldn't we expect to find certain doctrines back in the first century, like the plurality of gods, men becoming gods, the father once having been a man, and yet we don't see this anywhere. It's nowhere. So this idea that Mormonism is the restored church is flatly false. And besides, the verses that Mormons cite, trying to point, the, point out that there was a total apostasy in the church, uh, those verses are just not referring to a total apostasy. The verses they cite are referring to a local apostasy in the first century only. Beyond that, we know from Scripture that Jesus would be with his people to the end of the age and that the gates of Hades would not prevail against the church. It's very clear that scripturally God would have a remnant in the church throughout all church history. Yes, there would be some local apostasies, but no total apostasy. Number two, the Book of Mormon is not the Word of God. Uh, the Book of Mormon is not the Word of God. Uh, I mentioned last night that sometimes when I'm talking to a Mormon to whom I've been speaking for a time, and they ask me to pray about the Book of Mormon, I'll sometimes ask, well, which Book of Mormon? The uh, 1830 edition, the 1921 edition, or today's edition, which has over 4,000 changes from the 1830 edition. Now, granted, there are uh, a number of these changes that are minor, but there are some also major ones. For example, I can think of one in uh, First Nephi, uh, which changed the phrase eternal father to son of the eternal father. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty substantive change when you think about it. And if the Book of Mormon was translated by Joseph Smith looking into a hat, and using a seer stone to translate one letter at a time, how could there be 4,000 changes necessary? Now you understand why I shared that earlier, right? How could there be the need for 4,000 changes if it was if it's translated in the way that it claims to be translated? And besides, there was a voice from heaven that said, this has been translated by the power of God, and it is a correct translation. So all I'm saying is the evidence doesn't stack up. How can it possibly be the most correct book on earth? Furthermore, there's massive plagiarisms in the Book of Mormon from the King James Version. Over 27,000 words. Even the italicized words from the KJV are plagiarized. Now keep in mind that King James was 1611. Book of Mormon was completed in the early centuries, by the 4th century. And so how come you have perfect King James English, including the italicized words, in the Book of Mormon? It doesn't make sense. There's massive manuscript support for the Bible, and this massive manuscript support is unlike the Book of Mormon, in which we don't even have a photograph of the alleged golden plates. You see, and we've got many thousands of manuscripts that we can compare with each other. One of the interesting things is, is how the evidence indicates accuracy of transmission. This is one of the areas where Mormons have tried to say that the Book of Mormon is superior. They said that the Bible has transmissional corruptions. Look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have a copy of Isaiah. Now, that copy of Isaiah is dated about 150 B.C. Previous to that discovery, the earliest edition of Isaiah that we had was dated somewhere around 900 A.D., so now we have a manuscript a thousand years earlier. When you compare the two, 
they're practically identical. In over 95% of the, the manuscript, it's identical. And in the 5% where there are differences, it's generally just misspellings of words. You see? So this indicates tremendous accuracy on the part of the uh, transmission of the uh, biblical manuscripts. I could also point to predictive prophecy. You know, um, this is one of the arguments I always use against any alleged holy book. God can declare the end from the beginning. God has given multiple prophecies far in advance of their fulfillment. What other holy book can lay claim to that kind of thing? Can the Book of Mormon... No. Can the Quran? No. Can the Hindu Vedas? No. Can uh, the divine principle? No. No book can compete with the Bible when it comes to predictive prophecy. And I think this is one indication that the Bible is indeed the word of God. Certainly we know that the writers of the Bible were men who were noble, full of integrity, men who gave up their lives in defense of the truth. Uh, you certainly won't find that in other religions. And again, this last point, so challenge the Mormon. Show me which verses are inaccurate. You'll want to say that at the beginning of your discussion, because after you've brought up a verse that contradicts them, they may say at that point, oh, that verse is problematic. So establish right up front you know, which verses are problematic, and I'll avoid those. I've never had a Mormon tell me what verses they were. Number four, there is one true God. There is one true God. In Isaiah 44, verse 8, we find God saying, is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Now, you've got to keep in mind, sometimes Mormons will say that's the God of this, this world. That's just the God of this planet. Well, that's not what we find in Isaiah. We're talking about the God of all the universe, all the creation. Is there a God beside me? No, says the God of the Bible. In Isaiah 45, we read, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God, period. Further, God is not an exalted man or a physical being. We read this in Hosea 11.9. Scripture tells us that God is spirit, John 4.24, and that a spirit does not have flesh and bones, according to Luke 24.39. God is portrayed as the creator of man. Man is a creation. Two different classes. God does not progress, but he is eternal. He is also immutable, a word which means that God does not change in his nature. God is unchanging. In fact, the way that Norman Geisler put it is, God does not blossom. He is always in full bloom. Okay? So God didn't go through a progress to become God. God has always been God. Human beings do not become gods. Human beings do not become gods. In fact, my favorite verse for this is Isaiah 43, verse 10, which says, Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Now consider this in the context of what I've told you about the Heavenly Fathers. The Heavenly Father has a Heavenly Father, who has a Heavenly Father, who has a Heavenly Father, who has a Heavenly Father, and so on and so forth. This verse says, Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. There's one God, and I am it, God says. So that's a very good verse to use. Uh, John 10, 34, this is the verse that uh, has been misinterpreted by the Mormons. That's the verse where Jesus says, Ye are gods. Here's what's going on there. And I know that uh, sometimes Christians get confused over this, so let me try to explain it real clearly. The Jews are persecuting Jesus because Jesus claimed to be God. So Jesus cites one of their own books, Psalms. He meets them on their own ground. He goes to the Psalms in Psalm 82, and he's talking to them about how the ancient judges of Israel were called gods with a small g because they made life and death decisions over people. Okay? Gods with a small g. So Jesus says, you know, back in the Old Testament, even your own judges were called gods with a small g because of the work that they did making life and death decisions over people. How much more appropriate is that I be called God because of my works, the divine miracles? That's basically what I think is going on 
in that verse. Certainly Jesus is not saying that humans really become gods. After all, in Psalm 82, it says that those judges will die like the men they really are. So there's no real context for, for establishing that, uh, that Jesus supported the Mormon doctrine here. In fact, it argues against it. And then seven, Jesus is eternal deity. Uh, this is another one of those passages or, or topics where I could spend really the next hour talking about because the evidence is so massive. Uh, Jesus did not progress to deity, but has always been deity. For example, I think about John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When it says the Word was God, that's an imperfect tense in the Greek, indicating continued action. At that point at which all else began to be in the universe, there was the Son in fellowship with the Father, and Jesus was already perpetually God. I mean, he's always been God. There's never been a time when Jesus was not God. He is absolute deity. Uh, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, thereby tying himself to the I am of Exodus 3.14 in the Old Testament. And the I am of Exodus 3.14 is eternal deity. We also know that Jesus is the creator of the universe. He existed before it all. And that's not just in uh, Colossians 1.16. That's also Hebrews uh, 1, 2 through 10. Uh, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Revelation 3, 14, John 1, 3. Many passages point to Jesus as the creator of the universe. My point being is that this idea that Jesus evolved into godhood after he was uh, born as a spirit child doesn't wash with, wash with Scripture. Jesus is absolute eternal deity. Uh, number eight, Jesus' atonement provided not just resurrection, but a full salvation. We are forgiven and redeemed in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We are reconciled in Christ. We are saved in Christ. Can it get much better? This is so much more than just being physically resurrected. Christ provided the entire package of salvation. And not, not only that, but uh, when you look at the New Testament, you will find that Jesus is at the heart of every doctrine related to salvation and every sub-doctrine. Jesus is at the very heart of everything that brings salvation to man. So this idea that Jesus just provided, provided resurrection is flat false. And then there's only two possible destinies in the afterlife. It's not three kingdoms of glory, but it's heaven or hell. It's heaven or hell. There are two classes of people, the saved and the unsaved, and all people will spend eternity in one of two destinies, heaven or hell. The idea of three kingdoms of glory has no support, Sometimes they try to appeal to 1 Corinthians 15 where there's a discussion of the resurrection body. And uh, Paul compares the earthly body with the resurrection body by using the terms celestial body and terrestrial body. But Paul is talking about bodies. He's not talking about kingdoms. And there's certainly no mention of a celestial body or a kingdom there. So Mormons would be uh, grasping at straws to try to uh, derive their doctrine from that verse. Now having said that, I want to close tonight or this afternoon by uh, focusing on uh, a key witnessing tip. Now, the tip is this. Salvation cannot be attained by perfectionism, but rather is a free gift received by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you see that rope going up into the sky? How many of you think you could climb it? <laughs> well, I might get one or two good solid jolts. But, but you know, most people, they'd be, uh, you know, uh, sucking air after about 10 seconds. And so, you know, that's kind of the way Mormon salvation is. It's all about perfectionism in your own power. I talked to you about Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I want to begin by pointing out that I think that this verse is woefully misunderstood by your traditional Mormon. This verse is not saying that you and I have to be perfect to get to heaven. This verse is in the context of love. You see, the Jews taught, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Jesus says, 
That's not so. You should love everyone, including your enemy. You should be full in your love for other people. You should be fully committed to loving everyone, even if it's your enemy. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So it's all about love. It has nothing to do with attaining salvation. And here's what I like to do. When I'm talking to a Mormon about perfectionism, I like to pour it on real, real thick. I like to paint the darkest picture that I can so that the gospel of God's grace will shine through loud and clear. When you think about it, a diamond really shows up good against a black cloth, doesn't it? And so the point that I'm making is that the gospel of God's grace shows up like a bright, sparkling diamond against the dark backdrop of work salvation. So I like to share a number of things with Mormons, including their own writings. Uh, Joseph Fielding Smith said this, It is our duty to be better today than we were yesterday, and better tomorrow than we are today. Why? Because we are on that road to perfection. Let me tell you, could you live with that? That would be a very tough task, I think. The Mormon training manuals teach, Salvation does not come all at once. We are commanded to be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. It will take us ages to accomplish this end, for there will be progress even beyond the grave. So you're not done yet once you finish your life on earth. You've got to continue it in the afterlife. Spencer Kimball said this, Progress toward eternal life is a matter of achieving perfection. Living all the commandments guarantees total forgiveness of sins and assures one of exaltation through that perfection, which comes by complying with the formula the Lord gave us. Boy, the weight is starting to get on my shoulders here, folks. This is, this is really getting hard. And then uh, Ensign Magazine says, Perhaps no idea creates more emotional stress for some of us than the idea that we need to be perfect right now or soon. And when we fail to achieve perfection in some area, we criticize ourselves harshly, even to the point of despair. This is what many Mormons are going through, despair, because they're not perfect. Bishop Jeffrey Jacobs said, When I was a bishop, it was my privilege to counsel with many faithful members like Janet, who were struggling, often valiantly, to escape soul-destroying cycles of discouragement and despair that came when they failed to overcome their imperfections. You see, discouragement and despair, that's what comes from a works-oriented salvation. There's no rest. In fact, I picked up a book called Sanity Strategies for Everyday Mormons. And in that book we read, as soon as we believe it is possible for man to become God, we can really never rest for long, never say, okay, my job is finished, my work is done. We must constantly push ourselves to greater and greater wisdom, greater and greater effectiveness. It gets worse, folks. Full obedience is required. Spencer Kimball says, that transgressor is not fully repentant who neglects his tithing, misses his meetings, breaks the Sabbath, fails in his family prayers, does not sustain the authorities of the church, breaks the word of wisdom, does not love the Lord nor his fellow man. Now, this is piling up. It's getting heavy. Gospel principle says, those who receive forgiveness and then repeat the sin are held accountable for their former sins. So if you've got one problem that's been bothering you and, you, and you've just been sinning, and you say, Lord, I'll never do it again, I repent, and then tomorrow you do that same sin, then all your previous sins of that same sin are, are on your account. Are you starting to feel the pain? This is, this is what's expected of them. And then I go to the scriptures. I ask them, have you read Romans 3.12? There is no one who does good, not even one. Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. James 2, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. I mean, I'm just piling it on, you know, just, just piling it on. And then, uh, you know, the whole goal is to impale them on the spear of God's law, in love, in love. Uh, they need to see that they are hopelessly lost, that nobody can succeed in accomplishing this. They need to have any sense of self-righteousness absolutely shattered by the law of God. Then I like to take them to Scripture. For example, in Hebrews 10.14, 
by one sacrifice, he, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to make myself perfect because believing in Jesus, I get perfect already. It's all because of Jesus, not because of me. Uh, And that word, has made perfect, is a completed action in the original Greek. When you trust in Jesus, it is a done deal, period. That's what the text indicates. I share Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. There is joy through forgiveness. Uh, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Now they're starting to get hope at this point. Uh, The glorious good news is that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Their sins and iniquities I will remember no more, saith the Lord. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins are forgiven. This is the glorious good news of the gospel of grace. So in short, my policy is to drop the H-bomb of God's law on them, only to follow it up with the gospel of God's grace. That is what Mormons desperately need to hear. We appreciate you joining us for Evidence and Answers of Pat Zucrin, and it's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.